Welcome back. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we're continuing our series in through the book of Acts. And we just go book at a time, verse at a time, chapter by chapter, uh, section by section. If you're new to church, or if it's been a long time since you've been in church, just a bit of a refresher. Every week that we get together, um, we typically gather to do just a handful of things. We, we pray, we worship, we sing, we, uh, we hear a message out of God's Word, and, uh, and then we um, encourage each other in the fellowship of believers. And so we're glad that you're here today. If, if you haven't been to church before or you're, you haven't been in a long time, uh, this is the part of the service where we consider one particular passage of Scripture, uh, teach through that, uh, how to how it fits into the Bible's message uh, in its context and and what application it might have to your life today. So today we're focusing on Acts chapter eighteen, uh, verse twenty three, and we're going to go all the way through chapter nineteen, verse ten. And if you're new to the New Testament, right, this is in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are called the four. Uh, Gospels, and then right after that is the book of Acts. And it's all about the early church and what took place in the 50 or so years uh, after Jesus died and was resurrected. All right, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. This is the Apostle Paul that we're talking about here, and he has just concluded what's known as his second missionary journey. He took a total of three, and so right here in Acts chapter 18, verse 22, he finished up his second missionary journey. He landed at Caesarea. When it says he went up, it means he went to Jerusalem, and he greeted the church. James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, Jesus' brother James, and so Paul, when he arrived, greeted the church, and then it says he went down, uh, this is topographically speaking, right? He went up to Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch. Verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed, and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So verse 23, without a lot of fanfare, introduces Paul's third missionary journey. And his third missionary journey is going to take him five years. Roughly uh, 52, year 52 to 57. So think about this in context. This is 20 years after Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, like Alex read earlier today from 1 Corinthians 15. And so from that day, and Jesus was uh, ascended into heaven, the day of Pentecost was 50 days after his uh, resurrection and crucifixion. And then from that point forward, uh, the church began to expand and grow. But just to put this in context, this is just about 20 years later. This verse that we're reading today in verse 23, uh, it's just year 52 to 57. Uh, and so that's, that's some background information about this. In verse 24, <clears throat> a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That's just a, a paragraph and aside. While Paul is back at his home church in Antioch, uh, just north of Israel, there, uh, Apollos comes to Ephesus, and you'll remember from last week that Priscilla and Aquila, Paul had met in Corinth, and they were tent makers by trade, and they encouraged Paul, and they became companions and friends. This couple, and so when Paul sailed to Ephesus to go on to Antioch, he left. Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And so this paragraph describing Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila is taking place at the same time that Paul is in Antioch. We pick back up with Paul in the next verse, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you that this is the text that you would have us to consider, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you might speak to us by your word and by your Holy Spirit today, that you would teach us and encourage us and instruct us, transforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus. Show us where we have sins to confess and repent of. Show us where we have errors in our thinking. Show us where we need to love more or serve better or walk with you in a deeper way. Use your word today for whatever purpose you have sent it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul gets into his third missionary journey here, he states right away that his goal was to strengthen the disciples. That was his purpose. It says that in 1822 uh, that Paul um, was eager to return and to strengthen the disciples going throughout Galatia and Phrygia. It says that there in 1823. And Luke uses this word disciples to describe the subject of Paul's uh, efforts. He's going out to do one thing. He's not just out to um, make more converts, not necessarily. He's not out to build more churches, not necessarily. Luke tells us via the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit via Luke tells us that Paul is out to strengthen disciples 
That is, those who have believed in Christ or those who have not yet believed in Christ uh, is included in this process of what we call insider language, right? Disciple-making. In this passage, uh, we see the word disciple used in multiple times. 1823, uh, the process of disciple-making is described in 1824-26 through 26 with Priscilla and Aquila and, and Apollos. In 1827, in 19.1, and in verse uh, chapter 19, verse 9. So uh, four or five times here in this short passage, we see a reference to this process of disciple-making. Paul is laboring in this work of making disciples. And, and also, along the same uh, thought process here, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, highlights for us the centrality of the Scriptures in this passage as well. The scriptures are referred to in 1824, in 1828, in 1910. The gospel message, or quote, the things concerning Jesus, or quote, the way of God, or the message of the kingdom of God, all that is referred to in chapter 18, verse 25, two times, in 1826, in chapter 19, 4, in chapter 19, 8, verse 8, and in verse 9, and in verse 10. So you can see when we take this passage as a whole, We have two themes that stick out to us really well. Disciples and the Word of God. And I want you to see that those two things go together in this section. Tony Merida points out in his commentary that this section of Acts reinforces the importance of word-driven disciple-making and it gives us an illustration of what it looks like to teach and receive gospel-centered instruction. And I like those two phrases that Tony uses. Word-driven and gospel-centered disciple-making. What is disciple-making? We're going to talk about it today, so it's good to start with a definition. Jesus referred to those who followed Him as disciples. We might refer to them as Christians, but that didn't come along until much later. You'll remember earlier in our study of Acts that the word Christians didn't even come about until Antioch. But before we were referred to as Christians, we were referred to by Jesus as disciples. And it was out of the group of disciples that Jesus designated 12 of them as apostles. But disciple was the normal word for Jesus to describe somebody who is a dedicated, committed follower of Jesus. That's the word disciple. And so to make a disciple means to help someone become a more committed, devoted follower of Jesus. And so in this process, we see that disciple-making is word-driven and gospel-centered. And that's not new to just this passage, right? In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus said, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you, right? So everything Jesus taught in the process of disciple-making, we are to teach. And that's an example of us using the Word, the words of Jesus, to help in this process of making people who are followers of Christ, right? 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, Until I come to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, 
to preaching and to teaching. All right? That's what we're doing here today. We read Scripture publicly, and we'll read Scripture every time we meet together. Even at our budget question and answer meetings over the last three weeks or so, we always start out with a devotional. We read Scripture. We pray together. Every time believers come together, uh, as much as we can, we read Scripture together uh, in, in, in um uh, fulfillment or an in, in application of this verse, 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching and to teaching. Paul also said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives this um, word picture of what Scripture is like. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is, God, um, through the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter describes this process, um, filled men's minds as they were carried along by the Spirit. Is how Peter describes it. And that word picture is of a sail uh, on the ocean being filled with air. So the Holy Spirit filled these men's heads with these words that they were inspired to write. And, and that's described by Paul to Timothy as all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and complete for every good work. So we see in this passage and we see a principle that I want you to take note of that that in every way we evaluate and define um, and filter everything through the lens of, is this biblical? Every song that you sing, every book that you read, Every sermon that you listen to, one of your first questions or first line of questions should be, uh, does this line up with Scripture? Is this biblical? Does this in any way contradict the Scriptures? We, we hold up the Bereans, right? We read about them in Acts chapter 17 because it says they were more noble than those who were in Thessalonica for they examined the Scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul told them were true. So in every way, I want you to see today the importance of being word-driven and gospel-centered in our spiritual growth and disciple-making processes. And it's my prayer that you're going to form a deep conviction that you're going to evaluate and filter everything through those questions, through that lens. Is this biblical? Even while I'm preaching, is what he's saying line up with Scripture? Or is this, is this not true? It's my prayer that you'll be open and teachable, uh, that you'll be able to discern the Word, and that you'll carry with you this conviction into the future about the importance of aligning your life and practice to the Bible. Because the truth is, you know this as well as I do, that there are many in our culture who are walking away from the faith and going through a process of what's been titled deconstruction or ex-conversion, or just walking away from things. And it, it never really starts with a bold proclamation, the Bible's not true, and Jesus is not who He is. It usually just starts with nagging questions. Is that really what Jesus meant when He said this? Or is that really the, the tone in which we should... Is the Bible really true? Is this something that we should really... Most people who are in this process of walking away from the faith... 
it, it very rarely starts with a bold, out loud declaration, but it, it's just nagging questions that, that tend to tear away at this foundation, mostly concerning who is Jesus and is the Bible reliable and trustworthy. Now, you know people that are going through this process, and you may be in this room and you're um, going through this process and you're asking those questions. I want you to see today from our passage here that not only is the gospel reliable, not only is Jesus faithful, not only are the messages of the Bible true and accurate and reliable, a trustworthy guide for faith and life and practice, but that the gospel, Jesus Christ, continues to change lives. And He uses the Word and He uses people to do that. So let's get back into the text. I want you to see in uh, chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, uh, an example of biblical correction for those who are in this disciple-making process. We read about Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria. By the way, Alexandria was a leading intellectual center for the Greek and Roman world. You've probably heard of the library at Alexandria, right? It's supposed to have the hidden technology about all things UFOs and pyramids and all the, all the crazy stuff. Everybody says it was probably in the library of Alexandria that burned down. But it was definitely an intellectual center of the Greek and Roman world. Uh, The famous uh, philosopher Philo was there, uh, and it continued to reproduce uh, and produce scholars, religious scholars even, like Clement and Athanasius and Origen. And so Apollos is from there. It is an intellectual uh, center. And we see that about Apollos. It says that he's eloquent that he's competent in the Scriptures. It says that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, which probably meant that he was a believer. He understood the Gospel. He understood who Jesus was and His death on the cross in our place to forgive us of our sins. He understood the resurrection. Uh, He was probably a believer, Apollos. It says that he was fervent in spirit. The same expression appears in Romans twelve eleven, and it, both times it has the Greek definite article in front of it, which makes it the spirit. So when it says that Apollos was fervent in spirit, it means that he was fervent in the Holy Spirit. Romans twelve eleven says, "Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord." What does that mean? It means that in our service to the Lord, we're animated and driven by the the Holy Spirit who fuels our service and who animates and gives life to the efforts that we make in our service to the Lord. Apollos was that way. He was eager to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was eager to be filled by the Holy Spirit and used by the Holy Spirit. It says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew about John's baptism. So in other words, he knew the message of the gospel. He had saving faith in Jesus, but his doctrine was lacking, right? There were some gaps in his education, and he didn't fully understand. One of the commentaries I read this week said, How can this powerful teacher who teaches accurately the things of Jesus only know about the baptism of John the Baptist? And he writes, this points to the transitional nature of the time and the dawning of a new era with the beginning of the church in Acts. Unlike the disciples of John the Baptist, whom Paul meets later in chapter 19, Apollos has been taught about Jesus, knows him as the Messiah, and could show this identity based on Scripture, but his knowledge does not yet include Christian baptism. 
He's got some gaps in his learning. So what happens? Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife couple that Paul had met in Corinth, they hear him in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel and talking about, and and doing very well at it, by the way. And so they hear him, but it says that uh, when they realized some of the things that he was speaking, um, they brought him aside and, um, and they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here's a godly couple that knew the Scriptures, they knew the Gospel, and they were mature. It says they explained the way of God more accurately. And I love that they were also reverent and careful in the way they did this, right? They didn't stand up and refute Him in the middle of the crowd publicly trying to embarrass Him or humiliate Him. You don't know anything. John the Baptist came baptizing for a baptism of repentance and you don't even know a Christian. They weren't trying to humiliate him or shame him. They pulled him aside. They didn't confront him publicly. And they handled this confrontation in the most redemptive way possible. And you know what? This shows us something about Apollos that I want to see in your life. And I hope you want to see this in your life too. Apollos was humble and teachable. Humble and teachable. Those are two great qualities for anyone who wants to be used by Jesus in the church. Ask yourself these questions. How well do you respond to correction? You get defensive? Do you get angry? Do you go on the attack? Right? How do you respond when someone confronts you? Do you receive instruction well? Are you teachable? Are you humble? And you might say, well, nobody's ever really corrected me in the right spirit, so I don't have to receive that, or I don't receive respond well to instruction or correction. One of the most basic lessons in choosing someone that you should spend time with in a discipling relationship, you've maybe heard the phrase before, it's kind of one of those basic principles, but, but is the person faithful, available, and teachable? Are they teachable? Are they available? Are they faithful? Who should you avoid in disciple-making relationships? Someone who is flighty, not faithful. Someone who is never available, always busy, usually with things that don't matter as much. And definitely someone who isn't teachable. I, 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 I rarely, if ever at all, will ever consider investing time and disciple-making efforts in anybody who is not teachable. We sent a group of people over a decade ago to a disciple-making conference. It was a gathering of several hundred people, practitioners, 20 speakers or more, teaching workshops on the disciple-making process and theories of disciple-making and the process of disciple-making and Scripture for disciple-making. And and all these people kept going to this conference. And and we would send people almost every year to this conference in the early days of our church plant. And and I remember hearing that one of the people who went to that, a 20-something girl, came back and she said, I already know all this stuff. I already know all this stuff. And was just sort of dismissive of everything. And I thought, here are these... Great men and women who in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they've been studying this all their life and, and you're 21 and you already know all this? It's just this attitude that reveals an unteachable heart. 
Tommy Nelson used to run a, a young adult ministry called Metro for years in the Dallas area. It ministered to people 18 to 25, and there were thousands of people who would go to this every single week. And he remembers being cornered by five or six young women as he was greeting people at the end of this Metro service, and he could see them kind of plotting to ask him something in this sort of corner off in the, you know, in the, um, in the warm-up area over here. Whenever you're speaking and, and people are talking to you, you can always kind of tell out of the side if, who's, in the, who's in the waiting area, right? And, and he could tell that something was going on, so he's answering a couple of questions here, and, and he finally goes over and he says, all right, ladies, what's the question? What's, what are you dying to ask? And they said, well, we may never get to talk to you again, and we're just visiting. And, and, and so we all had one question that we want to know. What's one quality that we should look for in a future husband? It's a great question. And Tommy Nelson, after years and years of ministry and doing this with students, he responded with the quality that they're teachable. He said, assuming that they're Christians and they both love the Lord, he said, the number one thing I would look for in a spouse is teachability. Because if, if he has that, then he will continue to grow spiritually and learn. And nothing will ever be too much for him. Uh, no one will ever be above him, uh, below him in a sense that he, he has, always thinks he has something to offer and nothing to learn. Whether you agree or disagree with, with Tommy Nelson's um, one quality to look for, the truth is that a person with the quality of teachability and humility has a strong indication of godliness and future usefulness in the kingdom. Are you a teachable person? Can someone sit down and instruct you or correct you or rebuke you when necessary? May God give us all a spirit of teachability. The second thing I want you to see, not only is that discipleship is word-driven, gospel-centered, and it welcomes correction and understanding, but I also want you to see in this text that this type of discipleship that Jesus is encouraging us to do doesn't just begin when somebody becomes a believer. Discipleship doesn't become the day you get baptized and now you're going into discipleship. Discipleship is this process that begins with evangelism. It begins with a, a biblical conversion. And we see that in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, when these religious men are converted. Let's read the text there. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Uh, We see in verse 7, there were 12 of them. And he begins to ask them questions about their understanding and their theology and what they're believing. And you know that you're dealing with somebody who's not quite, you know, leveled up spiritually when they're, I don't even know, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, right? Um, one of the very first things we understand from Scripture is that there is uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Paul knows where they are, and he describes where they are, and, and they are um, believing or were followers of John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist? Of course, many of you do. Uh, but uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He came before Jesus. And long before Jesus became public in his ministry, John the Baptist began to baptize people in the Jordan River. And he had his own disciples. Remember the day that Jesus walked by and he said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some of John's disciples peeled off uh, from following him and began to follow Jesus. John the Baptist had a a great ministry, and you can tell that it's wide-reaching because here are 12 people who describe themselves as disciples of John the Baptist all the way over in Ephesus. 
But they have no understanding and they've not heard anything about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, right? Tell me John the Baptist didn't have a tremendous amount of influence. John the Baptist was a preacher with his own disciples and his own ministry. The Bible tells us that he came preaching, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But this was a preparatory teaching before somebody heard and responded to the gospel. And at some point in John chapter 3, we learn about this, that when John's disciples saw that more of them were leaving and following Jesus, this is what John said. His disciples came to him in John chapter 3. It says, His disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the, the one who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And John said, A person can't receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And you yourself heard me bear witness that said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's a wonderful humility in John's reply here. He says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Even John the Baptist, the centrality of his ministry and his mission and his preaching was to prepare people for Jesus. But these disciples in Ephesus had only received John's message and they were lacking in their knowledge of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Paul filled in these gaps. They placed their faith in Jesus and they get baptized in his name. And then we have this unusual record in chapter 19 uh, of this sort of Pentecost sort of event. Look at verse 6. And when he had, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the third Pentecost-type event. Acts chapter 2 is the original Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling on the 12 apostles. They begin to speak and preach. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 11, when Paul goes to Cornelius, I think in, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the Gentile Pentecost, and this is a smaller sort of mini type of Pentecost event, but, but 12 people in a room being filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues and prophesy, describe or look back at or at least allude to these Pentecost events. And anytime there's a Pentecost type event in Acts, buckle up. Because something amazing is about to happen. The message of the gospel will take hold and transform a region completely. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit results in the redemption of sinful men and women who have not yet believed. And this started with religious people, right? These guys would have described themselves as very religious. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They were meeting together. They were called disciples. And yet they needed to be converted to faith in Jesus. Oftentimes we don't think that religious people fit this category. We think, after all, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Did he said in Luke 19.10? He says earlier that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I'll leave the 99 and go for the one. We often think of those who are lost as those who are irreligious and outside of the church. But I think where we have the mistaken idea is that lostness resides right here. Right here within the church. 
There are those who are not yet saved, and they generally fit into two distinct categories, generally speaking. And you can kind of see that most clearly in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, right? There's uh, two sons and one father, and and the, the one son, the younger son, is, you know, give me my inheritance, and he takes his money and he squanders it on wild living and prostitutes and all kinds of crazy stuff in a faraway land. And and you can, if you wake up in a pigsty and you're like, Man, that pig food looks really good right now, you can tell that like you're really lost, right? You don't have to, you don't have to wonder how lost you are. One of my favorite testimonies in this church, and just a, a real beautiful picture of the grace of God in someone's life is when David Morgan was converted a guy who spent the better part of 20 years in Kensington doing what you do in Kensington. And God just reached down and redeemed that guy. And if you know Dave Morgan, he carries a Bible around with him everywhere. And, and he's a believer for about seven or eight years. But but his conversion experience where God reached in, he knew he was lost. When Dave came to me with his wife Betsy and uh, seven years ago, and he described his life and he described his influences and the things that he was going through. I didn't have to spend a lot of time with Dave saying, are you a sinner, right? Do you need Jesus? It was, I, I shared the gospel with him 10 minutes after I met him. And within a half hour, both he and Betsy gave their life to Christ. I mean, it was that kind of a, uh, they were really prepared to hear and receive the gospel. Those are the rebellious, sinful people that are outside of the walls of this church. That's one category of lostness. People like the rebellious younger brother who are out doing wild things. But there's a second kind of lostness. The legalistic, dutiful, moral, law-following, self-righteous older brother. Both of them, by the way, are lost in Jesus' parable, aren't they? It's the younger brother who comes back broken, repentant, humble, and the father, you know, runs, pulls up his robe and he runs and he greets him and he brings the fatted calf and he puts a ring on his finger and shoes and he fully redeems him and invites him into this banquet because the son of mine who was lost has returned. But at the end, right, who's not in the, who's not in the banquet? It's the older brother who just despises the grace and mercy of his father. How could you do this? I've never once disobeyed you. And never once did you ever give me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And and at the end of the parable, he's outside of the father's feast. He's outside of the banquet. Religious lostness is a different kind of lostness. Angry at the grace of the father. Bitter. He compares himself, look how much more righteous I am than the younger brother. Religious lostness is those who are completely dependent on their own goodness and morality or self-righteousness, and they, they take joy and pride in their religious sort of resume. I never missed a church. I never missed a Sunday school. I never missed a Sunday night. I always show up for Bible study. You can catch me at 6 a.m. doing my devotions dutifully and listening to sermons and giving at this place and serving at that place. And listen, religious lostness is a terrible kind of lostness. 
In many ways, it means that if my dad was saved, or if my mom was saved, or if I have an uncle who was a pastor, that, that God must sort of look at my situation and, and want me as part of His family because of my goodness, or because of my pedigree, or because of my family. Religious lostness, religious people are the hardest to convert. And churches are filled with religious people who are unsaved. No scripture can sing every song, but don't have a conversion experience. I've always been moved by the story of John Wesley. If you know who John Wesley is, uh, there's some similarities that I want to point out here. Uh, He was the son of Samuel Wesley and Susanna Wesley. Very smart person, attended Oxford, became a double professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He even went back and served as his father's ministry assistant. He was ordained in the church. While he was at Oxford, he joined and developed a group called the Holy Club, right? Um, they were, uh, would you ever call yourself in a Holy Club, by the way? I mean, they called themselves the Holy Club because they were dedicated to wholeheartedly pursuing godliness. And if that wasn't enough on his religious resume, he then became a missionary to American Indians in Georgia. But something happened while he was here in in America. He had failed miserably in his work among them, and, and he was forced to return to England. And he wrote this in one of his diaries. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Can you imagine being that serious about your faith? Starting a group called the Holy Club. He he woke up every day at 4 o'clock and studied the scripture for over an hour and did the same thing in the evening. Every single day. He journaled incessantly. Prayed fervently. This this kind of helps you. Maybe you think of somebody like Martin Luther, who before his conversion was just on his knees before God, constantly saying, "How will you save me?" and not being able to be cleansed from his own sin and guilt. Wesley, in his trip to America, had encountered a group of Moravians. And if you know anything about Moravians, they were a missionary movement, and they were a spiritually They had a spiritual vitality that Wesley knew nothing about. When storms came up on the six-week journey from England to America, they huddled together and they prayed and they sang and there was joy and it all radiated from them. When there were trials or difficulties, they prayed and they sought God. They they taught accurately and they sung with hearts of fire for the Lord. They sung in a different way. And, And Wesley saw something massively different in them. And that's when he wrote, Who shall convert me? Wesley wrote of his journal that that years later, or months later, after returning home, he went and sought out one of the Moravian leaders. And he he came to the point where he was convinced of of his own unbelief. He realized he was never converted. He gave all of his effort in trying to work his way to God. This sort of religious lost works based idea. And he wrote this in his journal uh, about his conversion on the night of May 24th, 1738. He said that for uh, for months I was miserable in my condition. And in this particular evening I went 
completely unwillingly to a society meeting in Aldersgate Street. I just think it's neat. He went unwillingly. Some of you might be unwillingly or willingly. Have you ever had somebody drag you somewhere unwillingly? But, But yet when he came, he said, in the evening I went unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And he said, at a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Isn't that good? He said prior to that experience, he was a committed religious man who even traveled overseas as a missionary. But in spite of all of his biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, he was never truly born again. He needed to experience and embrace the reality of the living Savior. And many religious people are in a similar situation today. Let me tell you one more story, and then I'll cut the text out, and we'll start here next week. A man named Elias Keach, the son of a famous um, pastor in London named Benjamin Keach, wanted to get away from his family, wanted to get away from the legalism, wanted to get away from all the morality and all the stuff. So he, he got on a ship and he sailed to America. And yet when he got to America, he realized he couldn't really make a living. And so he, um, he put on his dad's clergy outfit. And when people found out who he was, they invited him to come and preach. And, and this guy who needed money, who wasn't a believer, uh, was the son of this famous preacher. And so a, a group of hundreds gathered in this church to hear him preach. And he pulled out one of his dad's old sermons and he began to read through it. And and it says about halfway through the sermon, he stopped. And it was so awkward that everyone in the room thought he was having a seizure or that he was something was wrong or that he had become ill. And there in the middle of Elias Keech's sermon, he he stopped and he confessed that he had no personal relationship with Jesus that he had no knowledge of the gospel personally, that he, this was all just a farce and he was faking it. That group of people gathered around him and prayed with him and shared the gospel with him and he was converted there in the middle of his own sermon. Can you believe that? He went on and he preached all throughout New Jersey and, and in Pennsylvania. Uh, you can see the Pennypack Baptist Church uh, down on the other side of... Uh, I don't know Pennsylvania well enough, but down there, right? Down that way, down county line, um, down near the Pennypack Creek. Uh, but, but that's where his church is, and you can see that entire uh, message uh, about his life and story. There's just a reality that very few religious people who are unconverted will, will finally give up, uh, put their faith in Jesus. And every week, that's one of my uh, number one prayers uh, for this congregation, is that those who are religious and lost might give their life to Jesus, might not resemble more of the older brother, but resemble the younger brother who receives the grace and mercy of God and, and is, is saved. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Jesus said, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And the will of the Father in heaven is that they believe in Jesus alone. 
And Jesus said in that verse in 722 that many people will come to me on that day and they will say, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and give in your name and teach in your name and do all these things? These are religious people who are lost. And Matthew 7.23 says, Jesus will look at them and he will say to them, Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Can you imagine being in this room, serving a lifetime in religious duties, and getting, uh, you know, dying one day, and God saying, Get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. That's the reality of religious lostness. We see in this passage that Paul shared the gospel with those who were the most religious. They received Jesus, believed in Him, they were baptized in His name, and received the Holy Spirit. And and listen, next week when we get into what happens in Ephesus, I mean, it's nothing short of a miracle and 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 a revival and an awakening. For three years, verse 10 says, um, for, three, uh, for two years this continued so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Daily preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Can you imagine coming to church every day for two years? You say, no, thankfully I can't imagine that. But, but that's the reality of what's about to take place in Ephesus. Is the Holy Spirit poured out on these formerly religious people who are converted put their faith in Jesus, and then God just does an incredible work in the city of Ephesus. We'll, we'll learn about that next week. Father, thank you for our time together today. I thank you for the work that you are doing here in this room and the work that you're doing in the hearts of those who are listening. We understand that, that not everybody hears your word. They might be hearing these words, but, but not everybody hears your spirit gently whispering to their spirit to pay attention, to listen up, and to respond. It's my prayer today, as it is almost every week, that those who don't yet know you, who are trusting in their own goodness, in their own morality, or their own religiosity, or their own background and family history and pedigree and and all that, that they would throw all that away and fully lean in Jesus and Him alone. Nothing else can save us. And so we pray, Jesus, that You might redeem those who are far from You, whether they're religious lost or rebellious lost, that You might do a mighty work among us. We thank You for the process and the command to go and make disciples and the process of making disciples that includes being Word-driven and and Gospel-centered We thank you for that. We thank you that we can go and make disciples and we're called to make disciples and that disciple making starts with sharing the gospel with those who are far from you. We pray that we would be about the work that you have given us. As Romans 12, 11 told us that we would be fervent in the spirit, not slothful in zeal, but that we would be eager to do your work as you've commanded us to do. Use your word and bless it today for your name's sake. And for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.